Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. This morning we welcome you. We're so thankful you're here to join us at Crosslink this morning to worship the Lord. And I pray that God will be glorified in our time together today. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to the Gospel of John. To John chapter 14 for this morning's message and for our time together uh, here today. Uh, this morning as we start off, I, I want to ask you really a question. A few questions in a moment. But the first question uh, is really just a simple question. And that is, uh, did you mean it? Did you mean it? Did you really mean it when we sang a moment ago, Lord, here I am, send me? Did you mean it when you sang, we will go so the world will see your unfailing love, Lord, send me? This morning we began a new sermon series entitled, Who's Your One?, where we're focusing on the simplicity and the importance of every single one. The number one seems like a very insignificant number to us in many ways. If uh, you were to ask me if I had any money and I were to open my wallet and say, all I have is a dollar, you'd probably say, you don't have very much. If I, if I left the worship service today and and someone were to call me later and say, hey, how many people were in the worship service today? And I were to say one, they would probably say, ooh, rough day, right? In our culture, we often see the number as one, number one as an insignificant number, something that is not of great value. And yet I'm reminded this morning that the truth of Scripture and the reminder of God's power and presence is that even little is much when God is in it. In fact, all throughout the scripture, the Bible paints for us a powerful picture about the importance of just one. That every single one, frankly, is important to God because God knows what he can do in that one and through that one. For example, the Bible tells us a pastor scripture, Jesus one day was with the disciples and they were hungry and they were tired. And, and the Bible says that they came to a, an area of the city and Jesus sent the disciples into town to get food. And Jesus instead went to a local well that was there. And there he met a woman who was a Samaritan woman. She was an individual, frankly, that the Jews despised and rejected. We know of this woman that she was an individual who had been married five times and the man she currently was living with was not her husband. In other words, she was a lady who frankly had sinned, but she had also been sinned against. She's rejected by her culture and there she is at the well and the Bible tells us that Jesus went to her and Jesus began to talk to her. And in that encounter, Jesus shows us that every single one is important to him. And the fact of the matter is that day, the Samaritan woman came to a reality that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that he's the savior of the world. And she literally left her water pot that day. She went into the city and she brought the entire city out to meet Jesus. Never doubt what God can do in and through just one. Acts chapter 16, the Bible tells us about a lady named Lydia. Lydia was simply known in Acts 16 as a seller of purple. 
The apostle Paul was literally going outside the city to a place of prayer where he met Lydia, the seller of purple. It was there that the Apostle Paul shared the gospel. It was there that she believed in Jesus. She was soon baptized. And as the scripture ends that passage, she leaves the area. We know today that she actually went back to the city of Thyatira. And through her life and testimony, a church was established in the city of Thyatira. And it was recorded in Revelations 2 and 3. Never doubt what God can do in and through just one. But but maybe the more personal illustration to me is the picture that Jesus himself gave in the passage of Scripture where he is giving us the parable of this incredible shepherd who one day understood that he had a 100 sheep, and as the day came to a close, he understood that there were 99 sheep safe in the fold. Now, to any of us, we would probably look at Jesus and say, you got 99 safe in the fold. That one's not that important. It's just one that's lost. It's just one that's missing. But Jesus said, what did the good shepherd do? The good shepherd left the 99 and he went to find the one. In fact, he said that when the shepherd found the sheep, he rejoiced and he celebrated. He put the lamb on his shoulders and he brought it safely back to the fold. In other words, every single one is important to Jesus. But I think the question of this series that God is calling us to consider, and we begin considering it today, is this. We know that everyone is important to Jesus. The question we must answer is this. Is everyone important to us? Is everyone important to us? Is everyone that we work with, is everyone that we live in our house with, is everyone on our street, is everyone in our neighborhood, is everyone at our kids' ball field, is everyone that we interact with, are they important enough for us to share with them the good news that God has made known to us? Maybe you're here this morning. And you would be wondering the question, Pastor, why is that even necessary to consider? Why is it important for us to examine a season in our life of questioning who's the one? Who's the one that we should be sharing with? Who's the one that we should be ministering to? Who's the one that we should be serving? Who's the one that, frankly, we should be getting out of our comfort zone to go minister to and to share with them the hope that we have in the gospel? Why is it important that we consider who is the one in our life that God is calling us to? I believe there's many answers to that question, but we begin answering them today in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, as we answer the why. Why is it important to focus on the ones, so to speak, in our life that God is calling us to? I believe the first answer is this from John 14. Here's the reason why. Because there is one way to heaven. John chapter 14, I want to ask you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word this morning. These words of scripture you have probably heard on numerous occasions. If you've been to a funeral of a believer, you've probably heard these verses of scripture. In them, I believe God gives a powerful word of encouragement to every believer in Christ. But there's also a powerful calling of responsibility. Listen to what the scripture says in John 14. Jesus said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, listen to the words. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. What are the last three words? But through me. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time together. God, I pray today that you would speak to our hearts and minds, speak to our lives today, that we would be transformed by our response of faith and of obedience. May you be glorified in everything said and done here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that in life there can be many things that are confusing along the way. Would you agree? Uh, I have four children in my home, and at different stages of their development, they ask all kinds of questions because there are many things in life that can be confusing to them. Uh, someone was asking me just the other day as they were passing through town, we were talking about Virginia and talking about things that I loved about Virginia, and, and I had to confess that one of the things I don't enjoy about Virginia is the confusion of the seasons. And he said, what do you mean by that? I said, Virginia is the only state that I know of that you can wake up in the morning to literally a dusting of snow on the ground, and by 2 o'clock you're ready to go bathe in the sun and get a tan, okay? Our seasons at times can seem confusing. That's part of life here in Virginia, especially in the early part of the spring. But there are some things in life that aren't meant to be confusing. Jesus in John chapter 14 gives us some emphatic statements. He gives us some, some bold statements of absolute truth and certainty that are not meant to be confusing. These words, frankly, are words of great comfort. These words are words of great encouragement. At nearly every uh, memorial service that I have preached over the course of 17 years of ministry, at some portion of uh, that service, these verses of Scripture are quoted, especially in the context of believers, because there is so much encouragement and so much hope. When you and I have a reminder, literally, of the truth of who Jesus is, when we are reminded of why he came, and we're reminded in John 14 of what he has in store for all who believe, it is great encouragement to us. But I'm also reminded in John 14 of this simple truth. The very truth that comforts us as believers who are in Christ also condemns those who are not in Christ. Jesus makes a wonderful statement about heaven and about our home and about how we get there. He tells us that he's the way that we must accept. He's the truth that we must believe. He's the life that we must live. That's wonderful and truth, and it's encouraging to us today. But then he also reminds us of that sobering warning, and no one comes to the Father but through me. What I want you to see this morning is loud and clear from John chapter 14, why must we focus on, God, on the people that God has called us to, to minister to and reach? Here's the reason why. Because there's only one way to heaven. Three things I want us to see from John 14 in our time together this morning. Three simple observations, and I pray that through it, God will speak to each of our hearts and lives. The first thing I want you to see this morning is the problem of earthly life. The problem of earthly life. Jesus wasted no time focusing on the reality of problems in life. In fact, he tells us in John 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. 
Don't let your heart be troubled. The word troubled here literally means to be stirred up, to be agitated, and to be tossed around. Don't let your heart, if you will, be tossed around. Don't let it be, the idea here is don't let it be overwhelmed. Don't let it be extremely sorrowful. Don't let your heart be troubled. These are words that we need to hear today. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, wait, 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 time out, pastor, time out, pastor. Don't let my heart be troubled. Is that even possible? Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking like, he has no idea the conversation we had in our car on the way to church this morning. Or maybe you're thinking like, he has no idea the news that I heard this week. He has no idea what's really going on in my life. And the reality is I may not know every detail of what's going on in your life. It, it seems almost impossible. Don't let your hearts be troubled. How is that possible, Jesus? How is it possible that I can face troubles without letting my heart be troubled? Right? I mean, how is it possible that I can have circumstances and adversities and difficulties and yet not let my heart be troubled? Here's a simple reality. A reality of this earthly life is that it is filled with problems. It is filled with brokenness. It is filled with death and disease and destruction because of sin that entered the world. The book of Job says it this way in Job chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes, from, he comes forth and he withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Now, that'll just encourage you, won't it? I mean, pastor, I came here to be encouraged this morning. You mean to tell me that my life is short and I got a lot of problems? That's exactly what I'm telling you. That's what the Bible tells us. But the Bible also tells us sometimes we get this idea, hey, you know what? When we live for Jesus, that life's going to be easy and life's going to be better. Oh, when we follow Jesus, life's going to be a bed of roses, right? <laughs> wrong, right? Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, he, God, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, living for Jesus doesn't mean you get a free pass from trials and troubles. No, we all face them. Why? Because we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. God created Adam and Eve. He created them in the Garden of Eden. He created them in a place of perfection. He created them to have a relationship with him. And there they walked in perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with each other. There was no division. There was no disease. There was no death. There was no separation. It was perfect. But God warned them. The day that you sin, the day that you do these things that are wrong, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I've told you to stay away from, that day, death will enter the world. Of course, the Bible tells us that Satan deceived Eve. He tempted Eve, and Eve ate of the fruit of the knowledge of tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She ate of the fruit, and then literally the context of the old Hebrew there is that she offered it to Adam. It gives the picture that Adam, in that moment, sin entered the world. And with sin came death and destruction and disease of all kinds. And literally because of Adam and Eve's sin, that sin has passed on to every single one of us. And even still in 2020, yes, a lot has changed since then. Yes, we get all these technologies and knowledge and all these different things. But here's the reality. We still live in a sin-cursed, broken world. And that reality has impacted every single one of us. I wish you didn't have to experience the impact of sin. Selfishly, I wish I didn't have to uh, experience the impact of sin, but we've all experienced it. 
In fact, there, there are some ways we've experienced it without ever even thinking about it. But every single one of us, I would imagine, have experienced it in some way. So let, let me ask you by show of hands, make sure you're kind of engaged with me for a moment. I want to ask you some questions. First question, by show of hands, how many of you have ever experienced the death of a loved one or a close friend? You can put your hands down. I hate that you've experienced that. Frankly, some of the most painful experiences of my life have been walking through grief and walking through the loss of a loved one, and it's painful and it hurts. Here's the reality. Death would have never come into the world if sin hadn't come into the world. It's impacted us. Maybe the second question would be to be to ask this. By a show of hands, how many of you ever in your life have ever been diagnosed with any form of illness? It could even just be a common cold. By a show of hands, how many have ever been sick before? You bunch of sickos. That's what, that's what it means, okay? No, that's not what I'm saying. Well, listen, that would have never happen if we didn't live in a sin-cursed, broken world. Let me ask you another question. How many of you have ever had someone who did something, whether it was intentional or not, they did something that was hurtful and painful to you? Anybody like that? Just a few of us here, right? And maybe to make it more personal, how many of you have ever known there was something that you were being tempted to do, something within your flesh you wanted to do, but you knew you shouldn't. You shouldn't say it. You shouldn't do it. You shouldn't go there, but you did it anyway. Anybody like that? <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. He said, Pastor, what are you saying? Here's what I'm saying. I am saying that we all, in and of ourselves, have a sinful nature, and we all live in a broken, sin-cursed world. Jesus looks at these disciples, and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus knew full well in this moment that they were going to have trouble in this world. He knew the sorrow they would experience. He knew the pain that was coming. He knew even the persecution they would face. And yet, in the midst of it all, he would say, don't let your heart be troubled. In other words, I think what Jesus is getting to this morning is the reality that the quality of your life is not dependent upon your circumstance, but upon the focus of your life. So often in our culture today, we, we look at situations and we become the victim of situations and we'll say, oh, well, if only this didn't happen, my life would have been perfect. If only I hadn't gotten that bad news, my life would have been good. If only someone hadn't done that to me. If only I hadn't strayed. If only I wasn't sick. If only then my life would be such and such. But what Jesus is wanting us to see, troubles are a part of life in a sinful, sin-cursed, broken world. What God is calling us to recognize here is that even though we face those troubles, even though we face those trials, we don't have to be defined by them. We can live by faith and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. That our life is not dependent upon our circumstances, but upon the focus of our life. So don't let your heart be troubled. Now, in this context, Jesus is speaking to the disciples because he knows what's about to come. In fact, Jesus had been spending time preparing his disciples for the reality that he was soon to die and that he was soon to literally be gone from them. Now, he had promised that he would, and he would promise a few chapters later in John that, he, that the Holy Spirit would come. He'd promised that they wouldn't be abandoned and left alone. But still in this moment, Jesus knew that the future for them, according to them, was uncertain. All they knew in this moment is that Jesus is saying in John 13, my time has come. The time that the Father has ordained has come. I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to be separated from you. And literally Jesus knew that that reality would bring a sense of trouble. 
Their mindset would be, Jesus, no, 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 please don't go. Jesus, we, we need you. Jesus, we can't do this without you. Jesus, we have to have you here. Jesus, we're much more comfortable with your presence. Jesus, we, we would much rather prefer for you to be with us. Jesus, preparing them for this moment, says, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. We'll see why in the next point. Second thing I want you to see this morning is not just the problem of earthly life, but I want you to see, secondly, the promise of eternal life. See, what Jesus is doing in this moment is that he's calling them to live not by sight, but to live by faith. He's calling them to get their eyes above the storm, so to speak, and to focus their life, uh, focus their eyes on the Savior of life. He's calling them this moment to recognize, yes, you have brokenness in the world, and yes, there's trouble, and yes, there is sorrow, and yes, there's uncertainty, and yes, there are questions, but guys, I want you to know this morning, this world is not your home. I want you to live your life today in light of what's coming tomorrow. So he points them to what I'm calling the promise of eternal life. How do we overcome the troubles of life? instead of being overcome by them? How do we walk in such a way that brings glory and honor to God? How do we overcome our hopeless, sinful state? How do we have joy when the world and everything in it has been so deeply marred by sin? I think the answer to how is we must accept and believe and live according to the promise of eternal life. Three things I want you to see that Jesus speaks in this passage of Scripture and I'm going to speak of them as realities, as concrete things that we can, we can know with every fiber of our being. They can stand firm even through the storms of life. Three concrete realities. Number one is the reality of hope. Jesus now points them away from the troubles to focusing on the hope that they should have because of him. In fact, he says it this way in John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God Believe also in me. Believe also in me. Please understand this morning that there would be absolutely no hope in this world or for this world if it were not for Jesus Christ. There would be no hope for you. There would be no hope for me. There would be no hope at all in this world if it were not for the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of us, as we said a moment ago, has sinned against God. We've all done things that we shouldn't. Even when we knew better, we still willingly chose those things. But sin is not only about what we have done, it is also the state in which we live apart from Christ. How can a holy God accept us if we live in a hopeless state of sin? How can a God who is pure and true and righteous and justice not reject those who are impure and unrighteous? The only way that can be done is through the grace and mercy of God providing a way for there to be hope. The wonderful truth of Scripture is, and the wonderful truth that Jesus is getting to is, there is hope because of Jesus. There's hope because God, in his grace and his mercy, even though we all lived in a hopeless state of sin apart from Christ, even though there's no way we could ever earn heaven, even though there's no way we could change our standing before God, the reason there is hope is because God, in grace and mercy, sent his son Jesus to be a perfect son. He lived in such a way he never sinned against God, and he gave his life as a sacrifice in our place. The reason there is hope is because Jesus not only died on the cross, but he rose again from the grave. We have hope because of Jesus. 
So Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Listen to how the book of Ephesians says it. It says it this way. Remember, this is speaking before you were a follower of Jesus. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having what? No hope. You are without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Please understand what God is saying in that pastor scripture is, if you are depending upon anything or anybody else to save you from your sins, if you're depending upon anything and, ever, and anyone else to bring you eternal life and the promise of heaven, you're going to be greatly disappointed because you're still far away from God. The only way we can be brought near is in Christ Jesus Hebrews chapter 6 talks about this hope we have in Christ, and here's how it says it. It says it this way, this hope we have as what? As an anchor of the soul. It is a concrete pillar. We're not being swayed here and there. It's not some new revelation. It's not a different means of salvation tomorrow and then the next day. No, we have this hope in Christ as an anchor of the soul, a hope that is both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Jesus said simply this, how do we experience this hope? We believe in God. We believe also in Christ Jesus. There are many who have looked at this passage of scripture, those who are false teachers, those who will describe other ways to God. Many will look at this passage of scripture and they will use it to try to discredit the deity of Christ. There are some who will take this claim of Christ, believe in God, believe also in me, who will take it and say, see here, Jesus here is claiming not to be God. Jesus is not the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is not deity himself. He's just one of the ways. That's what some of the skeptics will say. Please understand when Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me, he was not describing a separation between he and the Father. Jesus in this moment was speaking to a Jewish audience. The Jewish people, according to scripture, especially as you're studying the life of the Pharisees, in this context, even the disciples, they all grew up, they all understood the reality of Almighty God. They were taught about Jehovah. They were taught about the living God of heaven, and they recognized him as a father. And so if you were to ask the Pharisees, do you believe in God? They would say, yes, we believe in God. Not only do we believe in God, they would say, we love God, and we worship God. And they would even say, this is how we do so. They would give you their list of rules and their regulations. They would give you their list of fasts and how they observe those things. And they would say, see, here's the evidence that we believe in God. Look at all the things we're doing. The fact of the matter is there are many religions throughout the world today who will say, yes, we believe in God. Look at all the things that we are doing. But Jesus here is pointing the disciples to a simple reality, and that simple reality is that he and the Father were one, and if they truly believed in the Father, guess what? They would also believe in Jesus. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 10. There are some today who will say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, but listen to this statement in John chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. The Bible says that Jesus boldly claimed, I and the Father are one. So clear was Jesus' claim that he was God in flesh that the Bible tells that the Pharisees responded in verse 31. The scripture says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They knew what he was claiming. 
Look at John 14 in the verses that following our text. If you've got your Bibles open, listen to what he says in verse 7. Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and guess what? You have even seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? In other words, Jesus is saying to know me is to know the Father. He who has uh, seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own initiative, but the Father abide in me does his works. Believe me, Jesus says, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Please understand what Jesus is saying here in this moment. He's not describing a separation between he and the Father. He is saying, listen, literally, we are one. He is God in flesh. And if you believe the Father, you will believe in Jesus. Why is this so important? Because Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 tells us, exactly who Jesus was. The Bible says this, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness. Can you say the word fullness? All the fullness. It literally means the the complete fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In other words, if you want to know what God is like, here's what you do. Study the life of Christ. Want to know how God is holy? Study the life of Christ. Want to know how God loves the world? Study the life of Christ. Want to see how God has a heart to serve? Study the life of Christ. Want to see how God treats those that are lonely and rejected and forsaken in society? Study the life of Christ. Want to see how God deals with a sinner like the woman at the well? Study the life of Christ. Want to see how God deals with the self-righteous Pharisees? Study the life of Christ. The fullness of deity, the exact uh, full manifestation of God is demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. What Jesus says, believe in God, you say you do, but believe also in me. What Jesus is saying in that moment is, there is hope for all who believe in Jesus. But please understand, the key is, we must believe. I ask you this morning, do you truly believe in Jesus? Do you truly believe, trust, do you trust in Jesus? The word believe here is often translated also as trust. Do you trust in Jesus? There, there are many, frankly, I, I'm concerned that say, yes, I believe in Jesus because of some mental acceptance they have made. They've logically figured out the arguments that, yes, Jesus did indeed live. He did indeed die. I I do think that he rose again. Here are some of the arguments to prove it. There's a mental acceptance. There are many, I think, have this idea of belief because they grew up in church or they grew up in a background where they heard about it. But, But your background and your mental acceptance doesn't necessarily mean faith and belief. I don't know the best way to illustrate that, but one of the illustrations I would give would be of many years ago, Wycliffe Bible Translators. There was an unknown people group that they had identified in a remote region of the Himalayas. And so Wycliffe had been building, trying to build relationship with these people, and, and they designated a missionary to go to live with this specific people. And, and the express purpose was, the goal was for the missionary to live amongst the people, to learn their lifestyle, to learn their language, and then in learning it, to begin to translate the New Testament in their language. 
the missionary goes. He lives there for nearly three years trying to learn their way, trying to learn their language, trying to learn what various sounds mean and to put it all together in a, in a specific format. And so as he's there for three years, he begins to understand and he began to translate the New Testament. He started with the Gospel of John. He went to the Gospel of John and he, and he found himself coming to John chapter 3, verse 16, that verse that we all know, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And as he began to try to translate in this native language, how, he struggled with, how can I paint for them this picture of belief? How can I model for them in a way to understand what it means to put your faith in Christ? And he struggled. He couldn't think of the word. He couldn't think even of a series of words. How could I adequately describe it? And he began to pray, God, give me vision. Would you give me direction? Give me wisdom. Help me to be able to communicate it clearly. Sometime in that process, the, the chief of the village had sent some of the young men off to another remote village for a specific purpose. And these men came back some week or so later. And when they came back, they were absolutely exhausted. They had been gone for a long time. And as they came back into the village, there were several men in this, 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 this uh, group of people. But there was one specific man. He came in and literally he went into his hut. And, and, and he went into his hut and he just collapsed on the mat. He was so exhausted and so weary. He knew the thing he needed most in that moment was absolute rest and so he just thrust himself there on the mat recognizing his greatest need in that moment the other men who came back in this kind of caravan of people so to speak they were talking and mingling and sharing their adventures but the one was just absolutely exhausted the missionary asked how, how do you describe how do, you, how do you say that? How do you describe this, this, this young man's posture as he's recognizing his greatest need is rest? He's not doing anything else. He's just thrusting himself completely there upon his bed, so to speak. How do you describe it? And he learned the word, and he said, that's the word for belief. What that missionary was describing is this, that to believe is this. It's to recognize that we have nothing in and of ourselves to bring. It's to recognize literally that we are hopelessly lost, that our greatest need, our only hope is the absolute uh, rest that we find in what Jesus has already done for us. What he was describing is this, is that it's not about ourselves, it's not about our effort, it's not about our work, it's not about other ways. The only demonstration of faith he could come up with was simply this, it's that we thrust ourselves completely upon the mercy and the grace of God. We come to an end of ourself, completely reliant upon God. Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. The reality of hope. The second thing I want you to see this morning, I've got to move quickly, is the reality of heaven. The reality of heaven. And here is where we like to focus a lot of our attention. Because Jesus says this simple statement. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. The reality of heaven. You're going to face troubles here in this world. That's true. But instead of being overwhelmed by them, let them be a reminder that this world, thank God, is not our home. Heaven is the home for all who believe in the place that Jesus himself is preparing for us. Heaven is a reality and will be our place for all of eternity. Heaven's a real place. 
In fact, did you know in the New Testament, 200 and, uh, 276 times the Bible speaks directly of heaven? Most of the time it's spoken of, it is spoken of directly in relationship to how we can know for sure that heaven's our home. How we can be confident that we are going there. How we can be confident that that will be where we're at in eternity. But the Bible does give us some descriptions of what heaven will be like. Frankly, I think one of the reasons that the Bible gives us a limited description is because it is too great for our minds to fully grasp. But the Bible tells us about heaven in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. It describes it as a city of walls of jasper. It describes it as a city with 12 gates that are made of pearls. 12 foundations that are made of valuable precious stones. The Bible describes heaven as a bright city and rich like pure gold. Even the streets are made of gold. Can you imagine the thought? Thank God we won't have to deal with I-81 anymore. <laughs> or the gravel parking lot that you risked your life on on the way in. The Bible describes heaven as, as literally a place where there's a river of life which flows like a crystal river. But one of the things that I love most about God's description of heaven are the no mores of heaven. There are going to be some things that aren't in heaven. Like a little boy that was talking to a Sunday school teacher one day and he was looking at his teacher, he was just exhausted with life and he told her, he said, I, I just can't wait for heaven. I just can't wait to have heaven. And the teacher asked him, she said, well, why is that? He said, because I don't think my little brother's going to be there. making sure you're with me, that's all. No, there, there are some no mores of heaven. For example, the Bible says there'll be no more tears. Why? Because in heaven initially, Jesus will wipe away every tear. In heaven, there will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. No more shame in heaven. In heaven, there will be no more death. There will be no more night, for Jesus himself is the light. In heaven, you and I will have a glorified body. <laughs> the issues that we're struggling with today and dealing with today, the wonderful gray hair, if you even have hair, it's gone. In heaven. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says it this way, God has set eternity in the heart of every man. Isn't that interesting that even in America today, statistically, we know that over 80% of people in America believe in heaven? There is something within us that God, within his image that he has put within us, there is something that calls us to recognize, yes, there's a heaven, and yes, this world's not made to last forever, and yes, one day we will die, and yes, there is an eternity, yes, there's a heaven, and there's even something within us that longs for that. It's crazy that you can listen to any genre of music in the world you want to pick, and every genre eventually will have a song or a theme or a thought about heaven. Why? Because God has set eternity on the heart of every single one of us. Heaven is a real place that we are called to pursue. Hebrews 13 verse 14 says it this way, we do not have a lasting city here on this earth. Oh, I love Harrisonburg. Oh, I love the valley. It's not a lasting city. But we are seeking the city, heaven, which is to come. This world is not our home. Third truth is we see the reality of home. The reality of hope, 
Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. The reality of heaven, I'm going to prepare a place for you. But the reality of home, here's what he says. And I love how he says it. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In other words, for every single person who believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the wonder and the beauty and the joy of heaven is that today we walk by faith, but one day in eternity, we're going to walk by sight. The wonder and the beauty and the joy of heaven, literally, it's not that well, sometimes we get caught up by the dwelling places and did it mean mansions and are the streets really made of gold and all these different things. The wonder and the beauty of heaven is that we're going to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. Even in our context of culture today, we might value a house, we might enjoy some components of it, but the reality is what we value most are the people and the relationships within that house. Please understand, heaven's going to be wonderful and magnificent and beautiful, but the truth of heaven and the wonder of it all is that we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because it is our home. In fact, the same word that's used for dwelling places in verse 2 is used in verse 23 as the word abode. It's describing this warmth and this relationship, this communion that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, when Paul tells us, listen, our citizenship is in a heaven. Somebody say, but I'm an American, or I'm a this, I'm a that. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your citizenship is in heaven. I might reside in the Harrisonburg, Virginia area, but please understand, my citizenship is in heaven. But notice what he says. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, our focus should be on the one who is making it our home, the one who is preparing a place for us, and the one that we will spend an eternity with, the one Jesus Christ. Christ. In other words, God is calling us in this moment to fix our eyes on the person of Jesus, trusting his promises, knowing that every step we take, even when it might be a difficult step, every step we take is simply leading us closer to home. But pastor, life is hard. Things are difficult. Things are challenging. You don't know the circumstances. You don't know the pain. You don't know these various things. Here's the simple reality. The preachers of old used to say it this way. Who can mind the journey when you know the journey's leading you home? Third thing I want you to see is the person of eternal life. The person of eternal life. Are there problems in this earthly life? Yes. Jesus told us we would have these problems. Yeah, there's challenges. We live in a broken, sin-cursed world. But in the midst of that, he promised us eternal life. In heaven with him. Well, what's the key? The key is not necessarily a path. It's a person. Jesus gave these statements and it inevitably led Thomas to ask some questions. Thomas wanted to know, like, all right, Jesus, we get it. Okay, so you're telling us you're going somewhere. You're going to the Father how in the world do we get there? Like literally Thomas, sometimes we call Thomas doubting Thomas and we kind of criticize him a little bit. But I think Thomas is just like about nearly every man I know. He's just practical and logical and asking the question that everybody else is thinking, okay? Like 
we don't all ask the question, but we're all kind of logical, and pra- a lot is logical or practical. I think Thomas is literally like, hmm, okay, Jesus is leaving. He's going to the Father. I don't want to miss this. So what's the path I'm supposed to take, Jesus? Like, what are the directions? What are the instructions? What, what's the Google Maps definition? Like, how do I get there, okay? Jesus points him not to a list of directions. He points them only to a person. He points Thomas to himself. And Jesus says three things. He says, Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The person of eternal life is Jesus Christ. And we see that in three ways. We see it first in the reality that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way to heaven that we must accept. Now, I realize this flies in the face of our culture. I realize this is not popular. I realize this has been criticized openly from politicians and skeptics and everybody else. But here's the reality. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way. He did not say, I am a way. He did not say, I am an option. He did not say, I'm one of many. He said, I am the way to heaven. Some will ask, well, how can there be only one way? Aren't there many other religions? Aren't there good works in all religions? Aren't there well-meaning, like intentional people in all religions? Does this mean that all other religions are bad? Jesus said, I am the way. One thing that's interesting to me is that when you study all other religions, all other religions have a list of rules, responsibilities, and regulations. They have a list of works that must be done. They have a list of achievements that must be made. They have a list of of things that you must do. And in doing those things, in many ways, they kind of are preaching that if you do these things, you basically earn God's favor. If you do these things, you please the prophet. If you do these things, you earn this in heaven. If you do these things, then this is what it will be for you. But what stands out different in all those other religions in Christ That Christ has not called you to do. He came and he did for us what we could never do on our own. He came and literally gave his life on a cross. He came and lived a sinless life. He came and died and he rose again from the grave. In other words, there is only one who came from heaven down to earth. There is only one in the history of the entire world who lived a sinless, perfect life. There is only one who then gave his life as a substitute and sacrifice in the place of all mankind. There's only one proving that he was the acceptable way who rose again from the grave. There's only one who in his resurrected form appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses at one time. There's only one who was seated at the right hand of the Father. There's only one who is making a place in heaven for us today. There's only only one who is making intercession before God the Father in this very moment. There's only one who's coming again one day as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus is the only one who has both the right and the authority to say, I am the way. He's the way we must accept. He's the truth 
we must believe. I am the way, I am the truth. So what do we make of these other religions? What do we do with all these other teachings? What do we determine about those who say you've got to do this and you've got to do that? And if you do this, this is what will happen in the future. What do we determine about all these other religions that have come about since then? Here's what we determine. Jesus said, I am the truth. He's the truth that we must believe. All we need to know about the truth of our sin, all that we need to know about the truth of salvation, all that we need to know about the truth of Jesus himself, about heaven and its future, everything we need to know about the truth we find in Christ because he is the truth. No wonder, even when John was describing Jesus as coming to earth, here's how he described it in John 1.14. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and what? Truth. Oh, what does the Bible say in John chapter 8? What's the result of knowing Jesus, the truth? John 8 verse 32. Oh, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Are you free this morning? You believe the truth? Finally, Jesus said, I am the life. Jesus is the life. He's the way, he's the truth, and he is the life. Many religions of the world promise eternal life and certain blessings in the afterlife. However, at the heart of all of them stand leaders and so-called prophets who themselves died. Doesn't it stand to reason if they're going to be able to give eternal life, they too would have it? I'm not being funny, but seriously. Jesus came, he died, and he rose again from the grave. No wonder Jesus would say in John 11, verse 25, I am, hello, the resurrection and the life. And then he would go on to say in verse 25, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. In other words, even when this temporary dwelling is over, even when this earthly life for me is over, for every single person who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we will live eternally with him in heaven. Why? Because he is the resurrection and the life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And here's how he summarizes it all. He says, and no one comes to the Father but through me. In other words, as the preachers of old used to say it, they said it like this. You come to God through Jesus or you don't come at all. You come to God through Jesus or you don't come at all. As we close the message this morning, I want to challenge you to consider Two simple questions. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Two questions. Number one, in your life, have you believed in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, believing in him, that he's the son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the grave? Do you know today that you're going to heaven when this life is over? You know, many people live their life in such a way that they think, 
I got a long time before I got to make a decision about that, Pastor. I got a long time. I got my whole life ahead of me. Pastor, I'm just a teenager. I'm just a, just a college student. I mean, I'm a young adult. I, 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 man, I'm, I'm, I'm a newlywed. I got my whole life ahead of me. I got a long time to figure that out. You may think that, but there is not a single one of us that's guaranteed another day. Don't we know in our culture today that it doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, it doesn't matter how famous you are or how insignificant you may feel or seem to the world around you, it doesn't matter your background, none of us is guaranteed tomorrow. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this is the judgment. We will stand before God and give an account specifically with what we did with Jesus. Did we accept him by faith as the way, the truth, and the life, or did we reject him? Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. Many today live with the false illusion that they'll be in heaven of some other means, but Jesus said the only way there is through me. Have you accepted Jesus Christ by faith, believing that he's the way, the truth, and the life? This morning, if you haven't, you can, and I urge you, and I plead with you to do so. I, I beg you today to put your faith in Jesus and know without a doubt that you've been saved and that heaven is your home. That's the first question. Second question. If you have already believed in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, here's the question. What are you doing today so that everyone in your life also knows the way? I have to confess that There are some people in my life that I've been content to just let them keep walking in darkness because I haven't told them. I haven't gone out of my way to serve them. I haven't gotten over my fear to go share with them the way that they can know and experience the gift of eternal life. Frankly, in many ways I valued my comfort here over the discomfort of telling them of how they can know heaven as their home. Earlier today we sang, Lord, here I am, send me. But I ask you today, you really mean that? It's easy for us to think about reaching the world for Jesus. Honestly, it's kind of easy for us to talk about mission trips and sending people and going to the villages and going to the uttermost parts of the earth. guarantee for all of us our first step needs to humble ourselves before God and repent of our silence and 
then to get up from that altar and go across the street. Go across the room. Go down the hall in our workplace. It's to go to those in our life that we're not sure of where they stand. We're not sure if they know Christ as their Lord and Savior. We don't know if they believed in Jesus. We, we don't know if heaven is their home. We don't know if we show up at work tomorrow, they're even going to be here. They could already be in eternity. We don't know when we, when we wave at that neighbor, have a good day, when it's the last time. We don't know when those moments are, but what we do know is this. We know that heaven is real. We know that Jesus has promised eternal life to all who believe. We know that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And God help me and God help us as a church not to be content to be silent when a whole world of people in our life and people throughout the world itself are in need. Jesus is the way question is what are we doing with it all over the building let's bow our heads in a moment of response what is God wanting you to do with what you've heard today God never gives us a word merely for our information it is for our transformation we would be changed by response, by a response of faith. This morning, right where you're sitting today, maybe you're here today and you'd say, Pastor, if I were to die today and to stand before God, maybe you're here this morning, you'd say, Pastor, I don't know that I'd be in heaven. Pastor, if I were to stand before God today, when I think about heaven and I think about salvation and I think about all these different things, I I think back to my upbringing. I think back to so-and-so's life. I think about my good works. I think about the things I try to do, but I can't say with certainty that I have believed in Jesus to be my Lord and Savior. I'm reminded of the illustration of that missionary. What he was trying to envision in belief was someone who was not dependent upon himself. Someone who literally came to an end of themselves to where they thrust themselves completely upon that mat for rest and refreshment for all that it needs. The idea of belief is you realize you can't do it on your own, so you're thrusting yourself completely on the grace and the mercy of God, believing that Jesus died and rose again from the He's the Lord. And as a result, you're inviting him to be the Lord of your life. Maybe you're here this morning, you'd say, Pastor, I can't say with certainty that I would be in heaven, but today I am believing in Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. I know I can't work. I know I can't do a lot of good works to change it. All I can do is put my faith in Jesus. And today, that's my decision. Today, that's my response. Today, I am thrusting myself completely on the mercy and grace of God. I believe in Jesus Christ to be my Savior. If that's you this morning, right where you are, I want to celebrate with you. And I want to lead you in a prayer in just a moment of how you can know for sure that heaven is your home and that Christ is your Savior. If that's you this morning, right where you are, would you just quietly slip up your hand high and say, Pastor, that's me. Put your hand up high. Just keep it high for just a moment. Thank you for your honesty. You can put your hands down. For those of you who just raised your hand, the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, if you believe, 
that God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And by that, it means that you're believing that Jesus died and rose again from the grave. And you are confessing that Jesus from this day forward is to be the Lord and the ruler of your life. You're not living according to your own self. You're not living into your sins anymore. You're living for Jesus. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.